You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, and if you don't own a Bible, there are men coming down the aisles, and if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It's marked to the passage that I'll be starting in this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the Bible they put in your hand as a gift from us to you. And of course, we want you to be able to look at the Word and recognize that we are reading from and teaching from the Word of God, that we're not just freelancing and making this up. Uh, Paul's, you know, according to First Fleshalonians or something like that, <clears throat> or Second Hesitations, sorry, <laughs> or Third Opinions. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Stop. All right, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, God speaking through Jeremiah, and really this is the opening text and also the application for us this morning. God says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty glory in his might, and let not the rich man glory in his riches, but, and here's the application for you and I this morning, let him who glories glory in this, that he knows and he understands me. Father, this morning we have come here to worship you, and Lord, to learn of you from your word. And Father, I recognize that this morning we're going to be tackling a, a great, a difficult, a deep subject, because we're talking about you, the infinite God who is beyond our finite comprehension. And Lord, we know that our enemy doesn't want us to know you at all, nor to know you better. And so this morning, we would ask that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, that you would grant us a mind to comprehend, and most importantly, a heart that is open to receive what you want to speak to us this morning about yourself and how it is that you relate to us. And so, Lord, would you teach us? And we know that you will, because we ask it confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, kind of a little backstory on Monday... I just had this urgent sense from the Holy Spirit that I needed to get after pre preparing a, a new series uh, for teaching here in the fellowship. You'll recall that the last time I had a chance to teach, <clears throat> that I finished off the book of Ephesians and uh, had enjoyed doing that over the course of two years, starting in chapter one, going all the way through the end of chapter six. And so I knew I needed to start working on a new series, but I, I had a lot of things going on. I was out of town doing a mission trip and all sorts of other things. So I really didn't have the time, but last Monday I felt like there's a real impression of the Holy Spirit. You need to start in this series. Now, I always have what we call a pocket sermon ready because that's part of my duty is that Pastor Damien wants to know that if he's sick and calls me at six in the morning on Sunday that I'm ready to roll, that I don't have to make something up. I've got something to go. So I had in my binder a great study in the book of Matthew that can preach in any circumstance and in any place at any time. It's just solid, great exposition of the text. But I had in this, this sense in my heart, no, you, you need to put that aside and develop a new study. So for those of you that have never taught, you need to understand that what Pastor Damien and myself and others do, for every hour that you hear us teach, there's somewhere between 12 and 20 hours of preparation. That's unhindered preparation, right? Uninterrupted preparation. So on Monday, I thought, boy, I better get off to this. And then Tuesday morning, we heard that Pastor Damien's mother-in-law had gone to be with the Lord and that I was going to be called up this Sunday morning. So I thought, boy, this is going to be great. I got the rest of Tuesday and then all day Wednesday and Thursday and then Friday. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I made a commitment two months ago that on Wednesday I'd spend the, the morning at another ministry in town looking at what they were doing and seeing how they were ministering to the homeless. And so my Wednesday morning's out. <laughs> so then I kind of crunched things on Tuesday. And, oh, by the way, I'm still preparing for young adults on Thursday night. So there's that also, a brand new study there. And then on Thursday, I'm already excited to go. And then I get a call from my wife. She's sick and she can't go to Sacramento to pick up our daughter from the airport. So now I have to run up to Sacramento to pick up my daughter. So I've lost that time. And then Friday morning, I thought, praise the Lord. I've got all day Friday at 1130. My wife called me and said, I think our cat, and if you know anything about our cat, he's 
without exaggeration, he is bigger than most dogs. Anyway, she thought he had a stroke and so needed to be put down. Well, I'm just already broken up. You know, he's been with us for 14 years. I remember from a kitty, and so I'm just like trying to, you know, okay, and so I'm going to have to take him down. And anyway, so he's alive. We've renamed him Lazarus. (laughs) Um, In any event, there went most of Thursday, right? Or, Or excuse me, Friday. And then I had committed to go see my mother and stepdad on Saturday, so all of Saturday's gone. So... I'm thinking, Lord, are you really sure about this? Because <laughs> I got this great study in Matthew, boy, we're, we're ready to go. He's all, we're going to do this. All right. So here we have it together, and I'm praying still this morning, Lord, are you in this or not? Is this really where you want to go? Because we're going to get deep this morning, and we're going we're to really challenge the congregation to think deeply about you. And so the first service literally the worship team now all they know is my opening text on jeremiah they don't know what i'm teaching they don't know where i'm going the first song this morning is literally from romans 8 which is the applicational text of my study this morning i'm like huh oh yeah god works prophetically through the worship team and literally every lyric of every song we sang this morning somehow underscores where we're going to be going this morning and the application of it. I'm like, all right, God, you're in this, so here we go. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to begin a new series. And it's going to be topical in nature, and that we'll look at a number of different scriptures each time I have opportunity to teach for Pastor Damien <clears throat> from various different books of the Bible, rather than doing what I did in Ephesians, which is a line-by-line exposition of a single book. But each time that I do get to stand in the pulpit for Pastor Damien, we're going to look at only one subject, and that subject is God. And the reason that we want to do that is, as A.W. Tozer so correctly observed, and I quote, he said, the greatest thoughts that a man can entertain are thoughts about God. And that's because there's literally nothing greater than God. Because if the God of the Bible exists, I believe that he does, then everything else in creation, in the material realm and the spirit realm, was made by him and for him, and as such is less than him. And while it's good and profitable for us to invest our time in a million different subjects, learning about perhaps physics or language, music, human behavior and relationships, angels, art, and a thousand other subjects, ultimately, there would be nothing for you and I to study if God hadn't made it. And we wouldn't be able to think at all if God hadn't made us. And so the most profitable use of our mind is to think often and deeply about God, who he is and what he is like, and most importantly, how I might know him how you might know him and have a relationship with him. But I need to add this caveat, and that is that we need to think correct thoughts about God. In other words, it's absolutely imperative that what we think about him, who he is, what he's like, his nature, etc., is based upon truth and not our own opinions or imagination. For if we imagine God in our mind to be something other than who he is and what he really is like, then we are creating an idol in our mind. In other words, if we just kind of decide that God is a teddy bear or God is a whatever, and we develop this whole imaginary God in our mind that is something different than the God of Scripture, then that is simply an idol. And what we know from the testimony of Scripture that God has spoken emphatically that he hates idolatry because it leads people down a path in which they degrade and profane God to be nothing more than a higher image of ourself, a path ultimately that leads to the worship of self and the worship of something other than God, which leads to eternal damnation rather than eternal life. Friends, remember that Jesus warned that at his return there would be a group of very, very religious people, people who were sure they knew who God was and what he was like. And Jesus warns in Matthew 7, he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? In other words, they're declaring that they know who God is and what he's like. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So in our pursuit of the knowledge of God, we have to be faithful to the truth that God has revealed to us and the only authoritative source available to us, and that is this book, God's Word, called the Bible. Now friends, that's important because again, we don't want to create a God of our own imagination or a God of the false religions, the God of the cults or the vain philosophies of man. We want to know who God is, what he's like so that we might have a proper relationship with him so that we might hear instead, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the glory of your Lord. Well, our goal, to, our goal in the time that we spend together today and in future opportunities that I have to teach will not just be to gain knowledge about God, who he is and what he's like. Rather, our goal in this study is to grow in our love for God, for it is the love of God and our growth in that will lead us to a, for, a greater form of worship and service for him. Knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. In other words, it leads to pride, but knowledge correctly apprehended is knowledge that brings us to a greater appreciation of God and a greater love for him. I would contend that to know him, that is God, is to love him. And to know him better is to love him more. And so I would invite you this morning in our future studies to, to learn with me what the scripture declares concerning God. Now, if you would, move from Jeremiah to the first chapter of Romans, where we're going to kind of introduce the definition of who God is, and that is that Paul talks about his attributes, God's attributes. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul writing, he says, For since the creation of the world, his, that is God's, And notice this, and you might underline this, invisible attributes are clearly seen. So in other words, what is invisible can be seen, being understood, Paul tells us, by the things that are made. In other words, what God has made reveals who he is in one sense and that he exists. Even, he says, his eternal power and Godhead so that they, that is those who reject God, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, friends, in my view, and you may agree with me, the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome is one of the greatest and most important in all the Bible. For here in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul lays out this irrefutable argument that all people, everywhere and for all time, stand guilty before God and thus are in need of divine intervention. In other words, we need a Savior. And that the foundation of our guilt, again, for all people, everywhere, for all time, the foundation of our guilt is that we have willfully turned away from the knowledge of the true and the living God to worship instead the things that he has made rather than God himself. And we see that all through the history of mankind, we see that in anthropology today, people worship rocks and ancestors and the dead and the living and trees and frogs and everything except the God who created them. In other words, Paul reminds us that since the Garden of Eden to the present day, people have willfully rejected right thinking about God to instead embrace wrong concepts of who he is and what he's like, which Paul tells us in Romans will first putrefy and corrupt our minds so that we are not able to think clearly about anything which will lead us ultimately to the worship of the things that God has made instead of God himself, which will bring his eternal wrath upon us. Now, notice there in verse 20 that Paul tells us that we can, all people can, know that God exists because, again, as I asked you to underline, his existence is made known by his invisible attributes. His attributes are those characteristics that can be attributed to his nature. Or or we might say it this way. An attribute is an essential trait of God. It defines who he is. In other words, an attribute are those things that define who he is and what he is like. In short, God's attributes describe all that we need to know about God. Now, there's two ways that we can know who God is. And so here we go, ready for your new words this morning. Some of you will be familiar with these. Some will think, oh, here we go. (laughs) Too much theology for me, Pastor. No, you can use these this week at Starbucks. So, 
God has revealed himself both through general revelation and in special revelation. Now, don't worry, don't panic. I'm going to define them both, and you'll probably, as soon as I define them, you go, oh, yeah, of course, I understand that. That makes sense. Well, here in chapter 1 of Romans, we find a classic example in Scripture of how God makes himself known through general revelation. That is, God makes his existence universally knowable by what he has made. Look again at verse 20. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, in other words, from the moment that he put people on planet Earth, his invisible attributes, in other words, something about him, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power in Godhead. So Paul talks about a couple attributes of God that we can, we can, we can acknowledge, that we can see evidence of just in creation. Now, the psalmist in the Old Testament in Psalm 19 echoes Paul's thoughts here by calling our attention to the starry night sky and the good earth upon which we stand. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. I just want to stop there for a moment. And if you've ever been out in the middle of nowhere with no ambient light at all, for example, on the Buffalo River in Arkansas, no ambient light and on a clear night with no moon, you can literally see the galactic center of the Milky Way galaxy. And you just stand there in awe. It's just like, there aren't just a couple of stars. Like here in Modesto, it's like, is that, a, is that the space station or is that a, right? <laughs> no, no, oh my goodness. It's not like six, seven, eight, ten stars. There are billions that you can see. And so the psalmist tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, that is the earth under our feet, shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In other words, the psalmist says what Paul says, all men everywhere for all time from pole to pole on planet earth can look at creation and know that God exists. So Bible students and theologians describe this form of knowledge, again, as general revelation. In other words, general, everybody can, everybody can obtain it, or natural revelation, because we see his fingerprints in nature. And because the invisible attributes of God's existence are plainly perceived by all people he has made, everyone is responsible to God. Now, Paul's point, the psalmist's point, God's point is that the reasonable person should be able to look at the marvel of creation from quarks to quasars, from atoms to Andromeda, the galaxy, to the miracle of reproduction and the unnecessary beauty that surrounds us in this world and throughout the galaxy and recognize this did not happen by chance. (laughs) I mean, this is so incredible. So complicated, so beautiful, so big, so glorious. It just didn't happen with a roll of the dice. No, there is someone behind the design of all this. And you'll notice in chapter 1 here in Romans that Paul, inspired the Holy Spirit, tells us that those who deny the evidence that we see in creation for the existence of God, they do so willfully. Not ignorantly, no, willfully. They know the truth and they reject it anyway. Let me illustrate it this way. The poster boy for modern atheism and neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory is a British scholar by the name of Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins loves to talk about why he hates God, which always brings up the question, well, if you don't believe God exists, how can you hate him? (laughs) Like, okay, already we're having a problem with with your linear and logical thinking here. But in any event... Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, argues against the existence of God. But then he admits that if we look at the evidence of creation, that it speaks to and points to a creator. Let me just quote Richard Dawkins, not my words, his, from his book, The Blind Watchmaker, page 229-230. I quote, as he looks at the fossil record, he says, the only alternative explanation of the sudden appearance of so many complex animal types in the Cambrian era. In other words, as you look at the fossil record, you see no evidence of evolution going from a single cell to a multi-cell to this, to that, to that, and then you have a horse. No, you look at the fossil record and you have complete animals with no evolutionary predecessors. Here's what he says. The only alternative explanation of the sudden appearance of so many complex animal types in the Cambrian era, listen, 
is divine creation, and we reject that, end of quote. Okay, now let's be honest here, Mr. Dawkins. You acknowledge that the evidence indisputably points to a creator, but you don't like that evidence, so you're going to deny it anyway. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that those who reject the evidence of the creator because it doesn't fit with their worldview, because they don't want to acknowledge God, don't want to be thankful to God, don't want to worship God, he says that their judgment and condemnation is justified. And so number one, we can know that God exists just by looking at the creation around us. Number two, in general revelation, and some would disagree with this, and so if you disagree, you can take me to coffee as long as you pay for it, and you can tell me why you disagree. But the second form of general revelation that I see scripturally is our conscience. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in his time. And he has, he has listen, set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, God is way beyond our comprehension because we're finite, he's infinite. But Solomon tells us that God has created every human being with an innate knowledge that there must be more to life than just this brief sojourn on earth. And that impulse within us, God designed to bring our thoughts continually back day in and day out, night after night to the important questions of life. So whether you are a financier in New York City or a cannibal in Papua New Guinea, you wrestle the questions, where did I come from? Right? Why am I here? Where am I going? And is there life after death? Is there a God out there, a designer somewhere? All those questions should lead us in the search for satisfactory answers. And that search will bring us to God's feet where we are going to find peace and purpose and hope for our lives through the knowledge of the God that's revealed in creation, both externally in what he's made and internally in our human hearts. Well, where do we find the answers to those questions? Why am I here and where did I come from and where am I going? Well, the answer to those questions in life are found in God's special revelation. So you have general, right? It's apprehendable by everybody, and then special. And by special, we mean that in addition to revealing himself in the natural world, God has revealed himself supernaturally through his word is recorded in the scripture. Paul, for example, writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. And there in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration, that word inspiration literally in the Greek means to be breathed out. In other words, Paul's saying whatever God has spoken was breathed out, was taken by his prophets and then put pen to paper to give us what we have here, the word of God. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy, that is what we have here, never came by the will of man, but the Holy Spirit spoke as they were moved, or God spoke, excuse me, holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter didn't just sit down and go, I, I think I'll create a new religion. <laughs> no, Peter and Paul and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses, they were moved by the Holy Spirit as God gave them his word that they recorded for our admonition. And so it's in God's special revelation, recorded on the pages of scripture, that we learn who God is and what he's like. And that's very important because all of the general revelation, the external and internal, can only tell us that God's there. It doesn't tell us who he is. See, creation tells us that God exists. And by logical extension, we'd recognize, okay, whoever did all this stuff has to be really, really powerful and really, really wise, right? Omnipotent and omniscient, omnisapient, excuse me. But it's his word that tells us there's only one God out there and that he is a holy and a good and a righteous God to whom we must all be accountable. So it's in God's special revelation that we learn who and what God's like. And that's important because you could look at creation and go, boy, he's a big, powerful God. I hope he's nice. 
right? And you look at the religions of men, the Greek religions, the Norse religions, all the religions of men, and they have these angry gods who are very powerful, but they're always looking for an opportunity to, you know, kill people. I mean, like, give me a lightning bolt, right? They're, they're, not, they're not good. But the word tells us that God is good, he is holy, and he's righteous. So again, it's by his special revelation that we learn who he is and what he's like. And then ultimately, the final and most special way that God has revealed himself to us According to the author of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is that in these last days he has spoken to us and revealed the complete and fullness of who he is through his son, Jesus Christ. That is, the author of Hebrews tells us that you look at Jesus, you have the full, complete picture of who God himself is. Paul echoes that thought in Colossians 1.15. He says the, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So what creation describes and the kind of the, that in, the invisible attributes of God, we see the power, we see the majesty, but we don't know who he is. In Christ, we have the complete revelation, the manifestation of that invisible God. That is, you might think of it this way, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. And that's exactly what he said to Philip as recorded in John 14. He said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. All of which tells us if you want to know God and what he's like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. As recorded in our Gospels, we have a perfect and complete picture of God and who he is and what he's like. So again, while creation tells us that God exists and by extension that he must be all powerful and all wise to make everything that we see, and his word tells us that there's only one God, a God who is righteous and good and holy to whom we're all accountable, it's in Jesus and his revelation as the Son of God, that we come to know God in a personal relationship, and we come to know Him by experience, by His most precious attributes, His mercy, His love, and His grace. So if you and I are to think correctly and think rightly about God, then we must study His attributes as revealed in the only authoritative place that we have available, and that is in His Word. Well, before we move on to describe the attribute, I need to say one more thing. Whenever we think of God's attributes, as we study them, we have to recognize that whatever God is and whatever God does is perfect. For example, the psalmist writes, Psalm 18, verse 30, for as for God, his way is perfect. In other words, there's no mistakes he doesn't kind of go down one path and go, oh, I didn't mean to go that way. I left my wallet, you know, or whatever. No, his way is perfect. He knows exactly where he's going. Moses declares in Deuteronomy 32, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. For he is the rock and his work is perfect. Everything he does from creation to his interaction with human beings today and throughout all of history, it's all perfect. He continues, he says, for all his ways are justice. There's no injustice at all in him. He is righteous and upright. And then finally, Jesus exhorting his followers, which would include you and me this morning, he says to us, therefore, you be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, did you hear what Jesus said there? With you and me, perfection is a goal that we will not achieve until God glorifies our body and brings us safely into eternity. <laughs> Till then, we will never be perfected. Perfection with God is his nature. It's not a goal. He already is perfect. And when the Bible describes God as perfect, it means that he is without flaw. Everything he is, everything he does is flawless. So when we consider the various attributes of God, and people number them from 15 to 22, depending on how you divide and look at and all that, whether it's um, his omnipotence, that is that he possesses all power, his justice, that is he always does the right thing, or his love, or his immutability, which is a fancy word that means he doesn't change, etc., etc., etc. We must remember that he is perfect in his nature, and the manifestation of every attribute, and that none of his attributes ever conflict with another. Each of them work together in perfect divine harmony. Now, some of you are thinking, "Well, time out, Pastor. I, I, I'm not sure I get that because you, you, you might wonder. Wait, if God is loving and just." Wouldn't that mean that his perfect love for sinful people would prevent him from exercising a perfect justice on those sinners? How can he love them and execute justice? 
Or if he loves people, how can he punish them? And if he doesn't punish them, how can he be just? So how do you reconcile justice and love in God? How does he do that perfectly? And those are great questions, and those are the kinds of things that we should wrestle with and think about. And the answer is recorded for us in Scripture. The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. For on the cross, Jesus expressed the perfect, complete, full love of God to all mankind. And on the cross, God is able to execute his perfect justice upon the Son by pouring out his perfect wrath upon all of the sin of mankind and thereby satisfy both his justice and his love. And so he's without contradiction. God's love and his justice are perfectly manifest on the cross. Here's the application for you and I this morning. Whether you experience God's love or his justice, which ultimately will bring his wrath, is up to us. In other words, if we receive the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, in other words, the justification of Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that the wrath of God has moved off of our shoulders and onto Jesus's, then we walk in and experience his love. But if, like Richard Dawkins, we thumb our nose at the existence of God and reject the cross of Christ, then we remain under the wrath of God, and his justice one day will bring that wrath fully upon him, as Paul says in Romans, it will be justified because he's rejected the love of God. I like to think about it in this way or this illustration. If you've ever gone running or cycling, and I enjoy both, and there's a fierce wind outside, and we do get wind here in Modesto, typically a northwesterly wind. And so when I go cycling, I kind of plan my out route into the wind where I'm strong and the back route with the wind behind me where I'm weak. <laughs> now here's what happens. Typically I'm going along Claws Road and I've got this 30 mile an hour tailwind, and I start just ramping through the gears. I move from the lower chain ring to the big chain ring and boom, 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 boom. And I'm in the 20th gear on my bike and I'm moving. I'm starting to pass cars now. It's like, yes, right? And I start to think in my mind, you know, hey, those guys in the Tour de France, which by the way started yesterday, right? I, I think still at 65, I got game. I could, I could ride with, you know, uh, Tade Pogaccia or maybe with uh, Julianella Philippe or whatever. And that's because I got a 30 mile tailwind behind me. Now I turn around and ride the other direction on Claus Road, now I get a headwind, and I feel like a four-year-old. <laughs> like I'm trying to pedal, and it's like taking everything, I'm gearing down from, you know, boom, 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 now in the lower chain ring, now in like third gear, and, and this actually happened to me. I'm like struggling into the wind. Here comes this guy on an e-bike, smoking a cigarette, zooming past me. I'm like, what? Okay, that's not fair. You gotta pedal, brother. It's like, whatever. But think about it, what changed? The, the wind didn't change. My experience depended on whether or not I was going into the wind or whether I turned and repented and had the wind at my back. The same is true of God's love and justice. We're all born under the wrath of God. We're going to experience his justice unless we repent and turn away from our sin and to Christ. And now we have the love of God pushing us along. And so his love is perfect, his wrath is perfect, he's just perfect, he's perfect in every way. And any doctrine that puts a limitation on God and his, the manifestation of his attributes is a false doctrine. Limited omniscience, <laughs> that means to have limited full understanding of all things. That doesn't even make sense. How can you have a limited all things? Like you can't do that. Uh, a limited power, right? Limited atonement, all these things like you're limiting God, limiting God, limiting us. Like, wait a minute. God is perfect in the expression of all his attributes for all time. Well, now we turn to that first attribute. And this is where I spend a lot of sleepless nights this week wondering, Lord, are you sure? <laughs> and again, I wasn't sure until that first song this morning. <laughs> because the first attribute that we need to look at is foundational to the study of Scripture. And this foundation of our study of who God is and what he's like. But it has a fancy academic sounding name that can sound intimidating. And some of you are going to just check out. And so I'm encouraging you, go ahead and take that shot of espresso. You're going to need it, right? Engage your brain. Because I know that you're biblically astute. You're well taught by Pastor Damien. You can handle this. And not just handle it, you're going to get it and appreciate it. Well, the first attribute that we want to talk about is God's pure actuality. Oh, all right, now I got another word at Starbucks. So we're talking about God's pure actuality versus the potentiality of man. Well, people go, whoa, a theologian. <laughs> 
All right, some of you are thinking, seriously, Pastor? Like, I came here to, like, be blessed, to worship the Lord, to grab coffee and donuts afterwards, and, like, you know, get, get something that I can deal with. What in the world? I didn't come here to get a seminary education. <laughs> Don't worry. Again, this is, this is something you will be able to understand, and once you get your mind wrapped around it, it'll blow your mind, and you'll appreciate it. Let me begin by acknowledging that the phrase, pure actuality, is not on the page of Scripture. You're not going to find it in Genesis to Revelation. You can't look it up in Strong's Concordance. It's not there. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that phrase isn't. Kind of like the word Trinity. Again, you can look up the word Trinity. It does not exist in the Bible. But it's an accurate word to describe the nature of God. He is one God somehow manifest in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? From Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, and the word God there, Elohim, is, is written in the, in, in the Hebrew as a compound unity of two or more. And then in Genesis 1, 27, let us make God in our image. And all the way through the scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, somehow three people, blows our mind. We use the word Trinity to describe it. Well, the same is true here. God's pure actuality describes him as a totally unique being. So here's how that works. God alone is pure actuality. Everything else, angels, demons, planets, plants, people, are a composite or a mixture of actual and potential. In other words, God alone is actually is, is. Everything else is kind of like, well, we're here, but we don't have to be here. God could erase us immediately, right? We, we change, we have the potential to change. Like you began your existence when your mother and father conceived you in the womb and you started out as a little zygote, right? That then became a baby, that then was born, that became a toddler, that became a teenager, that became an adult, right? And where you used to have hair, you may not have hair. You used to have black hair, now gray hair, right? You used to have no wrinkles, now your wrinkles. We're always changing, we have potential to change. God has no potential to change. He is who he is, or he said to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. In other words, he's pure I amness. He is pure essence. And so when we say pure actuality, we mean that God actually is. Therefore, because he actually is and has no potential at all not to exist or to be anything other than he is, or said another way, he doesn't just exist, he is existence. All of us exist, but we don't have to, <laughs> right? And according to scripture, it's all gonna disappear one, way, one day. The world and the universe, all of it's gonna be wrapped up and replaced with a new one. Because everything else has potential to not be, but God alone has no potential to be anything other than he is from eternity past to eternity future. So think about the implications of that for, the, for a moment, right? Like, this is where you got to, like, sobbing, okay, I know this is, this is hard, but think about the implications. Everything else in creation, from planets to plants, angels, apples, you and me, we're all this composite mixture of, what, true, or of actuality and potentiality, and we have the potential not to exist. And God alone is pure existence. No beginning, no end, a God who will never change, God who's not made of the things that we see around us because he made all this stuff a pure essence, a pure existence. God is existence. Everything else simply exists at God's good pleasure. That puts him in a category of one. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, great. That sounds like some real fancy philosophy there, like you've been reading Aristotle or something. But I don't see that in the Bible. Where do you find that in the Bible, Pastor? Well, we could point to a lot of scriptures. I alluded to one, the burning bush scene where God said, I am that I am. But you have to go no further than the very first sentence of the Bible. Let me read it to you, Genesis 1.1. Listen, in the beginning, God. <laughs> okay, right, stop. Don't just read through it. Stop from it. In the beginning, God. Think about, about what Moses is communicating. In that one word, God, it's imbued with, it's charged with, it's filled with meaning because it communicates that before there were atoms, 
before there was gravity and trees and waterfalls and lions and bumblebees, and before time itself began, God. Wow, right? I had a brother at the back door say to me, you judge your enemies by the people you got with you, right? I'm with him. Oh, we sang it. What, what could stand between him and his love for me? What could stand between him, right, and his rescue of me? What could, what could resist God? <laughs> David recognized, who is this Philistine, right, giant? It says, I'm going to slay him and feed your body and the body of your, the rest of the Philistines and the birds there because you have defied who? God, <laughs> right? That as Moses tells us that God was already there, a perfect, uncreated, eternal being, a being that was not caused by any other, a being that's not, not, not made of this stuff that we see in the universe. No, he made that stuff. A being whose pure existence. In short, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that everything else in the universe, in the spirit realm, in the material realm, in heaven itself, exists only because God, the God who is pure actuality, the God who is eternal and infinite and unchanging, created it. I like that. <laughs> you catch it, right? So, so what? That's, that's, that's great, but how does it apply to me? Well, that brings up my third A word. I hope you all appreciate or I articulate, right? We, we have, right, his attributes, A, his actuality, A, and now, are you ready? I worked on this hard, his affection. <laughs> Again, you might be tempted to think, right, how does this apply to me? Well, it applies, right? Because Paul, waxing eloquent in Romans chapter 8, lays out the blessings and the benefits that you and I experience because God is pure existence, because God is pure actuality. And it was the first song we sang this morning after our, after our greeting. Romans chapter 8, let me read it to you. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, Yet all these things, or excuse me, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I don't, a conqueror? Man, I'm intimidated by my boss at work, or I, I, I'm afraid to speak up at school because the professor is so much smarter than me, and I don't want to say anything where I sound stupid and try to make a defense for God or maybe whatever. No, no, you are more than conquerors, right, through him who loved us. And Paul wants to tell us about how much God loves us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us, that's you and me, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Woo! Paul understood God's actuality, that he alone is the uncreated eternal existence. And Paul tells us, again inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there's nothing in creation that can separate us from his love. And specifically, he lays it out, he says, death cannot separate you from love, the love of God. Because death has no hold on God. Death, for the Christian, is simply a transition from this life and immediately into the presence of God where he, for the first time, experiences full love unhindered by this earthly body. Life, Paul says, because God, who is the giver of life, there is no circumstance, circumstance nor situation during our earthly pilgrimage that can hinder his love for us. In other words, there's not a war, there's not an economic collapse, there's not a, a pandemic, there's not a, a loss of a job or a loss of a child or a spouse or whatever the life throws out. None of it can separate us from God's love in the life of his children. Angels. And Paul talks about both the holy angels and the fallen angels. And he says, because God created them both. They did, they're not eternal. They didn't always exist. God created them. But, and because he did, they cannot and they are powerless to stand between God and the expression of his love for us. Time. <laughs> did you know time began? Time had a beginning, Paul says, before time began. It began, by the way, when God spoke the universe in existence. And at that moment, the sequence of day and night began. Before that, there was no time. And God is not subject to time. Therefore, his love is not hindered by our past, our present, or our future. His love eternally surrounds us. 
And then he says height nor depth. And again, what he's saying is because God created the material universe. And we sang this this morning. No mountain is too high, no ocean too deep, no universe too great to keep the love of God from us. And then finally, to make sure that we understand his point, he drives home by saying, listen, nor any created thing. That is because God created everything, the angelic spiritual realm and the material realm. All of it's subject to him and is therefore has no potential to keep and to separate God's love from us. And Paul's point is that you and I, having come into a relationship with Christ, and notice he says, in Christ, can be confident that there's nothing in the universe, not in the material realm or the spiritual realm, that can keep God's love from us because all of that stuff exists at God's good pleasure and it can be gone in a moment of time because God can remove it. God who is pure existence, the one who is ultimate reality, the one who is the source of everything that's been made, the one who is to whom all of creation must bow, and that is an exciting promise. And it's true because of God's pure actuality. In other words, because he is pure actuality, no potential to change his mind, no potential to be different, to move from a good and righteous God to an evil and awful God. No, because of who he is and always has been and always will be, because he exists and he made everything else, nothing that he's created can stand between us and his love. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's encouraging because there's a lot of things that bring fear into our lives. A lot of things that keep us up late at night. We wonder and worry, you know, am I really, am I really saved? Am I really going to heaven? I, I blew it again today, I failed again, I fall short. It's like, no, remember God's love is perfect and his love is greater than our past, our present and our future because he dwells outside of time and space for him. It's all right now. Now I recognize that for some of you this morning, or maybe all of you, <laughs> Uh, this morning's study might have been difficult to grasp. You're thinking, dear God, please bring Pastor Damien back. Because we've covered some deep and challenging concepts about God and how the Bible describes him. But just because an idea is difficult doesn't mean that we should avoid trying to understand it. And that is especially true when the subject is God. Think about it. God is infinite, by definition, we who are finite are going to struggle with some of the truths about God's nature. We can understand some and get our minds around, but then we talk about other things like eternal. Okay, my mind, no. <laughs> like forever that way? Backwards? How, how can you just keep going and going and like what? But listen, there are no deeper thoughts than we can think than the thoughts of an infinite God. So it follows then that some of those thoughts about God are going to be challenging. But I want to encourage you not to dismiss hard thinking about God, but instead to think often and deeply, I would say daily, about God and who he is and what he's like, that we might experience the glory that God promised us in our opening text in Jeremiah. Listen again to what Jeremiah wrote. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Not, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories. In other words, if you're going to take pride in anything, you're going to glory in anything, you're going to be excited about anything, he says, glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. Now, friends, listen, I know there are people here that can tell me the starting lineup of the San Francisco Giants since 1958 when they moved to the Bay Area. Like, literally, could give me the starting lineup every year and their stats, their batting stats, pitching stats, all that, without... Without problem. I know other guys that can tell you the bore and stroke of every motor ever built by Harley Davidson. I know women that can tell a Louis Vuitton from a Louis Faketon, <laughs> right? Like immediately, like that purse is worth $8,000, that worth 50 cents, right? I mean, right? You guys are experts in all sorts of stuff. You've given yourselves to the, to the, to the knowledge of language or art or, or sports or fashion or whatever, and you're like an expert. You know all this stuff. And can I encourage you? If you can do that, can you and I not give ourselves, as God exhorts us in Jeremiah, to glory in this, that he understands, that she understands also, me and knows me. Well, friends, if you know Christ this morning, you can be confident in his love for you to keep you safely to the eternal home he's prepared for you. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. 
How does he do it? Pure actuality, the unchangeable, eternal, pure existence. Nothing can stand between him and getting you there. But if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, then you don't know and cannot experience his perfect love. Oh, you may have heard about it. You may have sensed it, but you can't experience it because you don't yet know God who is love. And I would encourage you this morning that you can change that experience by recognizing that you're a sinner and that there's only one way to know the, that invisible God who's been made known through his word and the person of Jesus Christ. And that's this morning to simply acknowledge, listen, <laughs> I recognize I am so far from perfect, but you are perfect. And I accept this morning your perfect sacrifice in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who has taken my place on the cross to suffer the perfect justice and wrath that you had for me and give instead to me his perfect righteousness. And you'll be born again this morning and you'll begin that walk knowing personally the perfect love of God. Can I encourage you, if you don't know Christ, to make today the day that you accept his promise, take the the engagement ring which he calls his Holy Spirit that he'll deposit in you and begin walking in that perfect love. And so, friends, would you pray with me this morning? And I hope that, that you're excited and challenged to know and understand God. Father, this morning, we thank you for our time together. And Lord, I recognize that I've covered some, some, some difficult topics and, and introduced some new words and phrases that can be intimidating. But Father, we recognize that you are the God of all wisdom and that you are able to impart your wisdom and knowledge into our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us that understanding today to get our minds around the idea that you are pure existence, and that you cannot change, you cannot, you, you can't uh, become different than who you are, that you are perfect in all your ways. And Lord, let us glory in that, knowing that your love for us cannot be hindered by anything in all of creation. And Lord, I pray for anyone who might not know you this morning, that today would be the day that they give their lives to you. They surrender to you, recognizing that they are but a creature whose existence is not guaranteed, but there is only one they can look to who is pure existence to grant them eternal life, and that today the day would be the day they do that. And so, Lord, we pray that you administer to each and every one as you see fit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.